It's another jam-packed week in the associate game and some of the biggest topics are again up for discussion. The Olympics, Afghanistan, the ongoing stories out of Nepal and also the history made by associates at the Under-19 T20 World Cup. We love you all for listening every week and we love our patrons who help us keep Emerging Cricket moving. From as little as $2 a month, you can help the cause by becoming an Emerging Cricket patron. To sign up, log on to patreon.com forward slash Emerging Cricket. It's a big, big show this week, so let's jump right in. It's a warm welcome in again to the Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. Nick Skinner alongside me, Daniel Beswick, to talk about Emerging Cricket, everything in the associate game and beyond. Nick, how is life in Iceland, my friend? I'm, uh, you know, I'm settling in. I'm um, starting to understand some Icelandic, certainly enough to at least, uh, you know, communicate with customers at work, which is a start. As always with languages, you know, it's it's frustrating being able to read so much more than you can understand. And then, you know, you hear someone say something, and you say, what, what are they saying? And then, oh, they're saying that thing that I would be able to recognize in a second if I read it. But yes, Icelandic's going well. Iceland's going well. Sun's starting to come out. The snow's melting. It's a uh, Sort of feeling like a positive time. I think I think it's meant to go down to minus nine in a couple of days' time, though. So it's uh, maybe not going to last. Oof. Yeah. Sounds cold. You do have a brain for languages, Nick. Uh, you are our uh, our resident translator in in most things. Unfortunately, my French beginners doesn't get me very far in in terms of uh, <laughs> emerging cricket. But between what French, Spanish, Danish, am I missing any? Am I forgetting any? Uh, well, I mean English, obviously, but uh, <laughs> yes, uh, we, we just got to wait till um, New Caledonia become ICC members, then you can you can lead a a tour to New Caledonia and uh, use French speaking cricket. Yeah, look, uh, don't hold your breath on that one. I've uh, I, I'm a terrible listener. Reading it is fine, but cannot for the life of me listen or, or speak mm. well uh, anymore. Unfortunately, you can definitely relate to my uh, struggles with Icelandic then. <laughs> yes, <laughs> mind you, it's about you know your fourth language trying trying to learn on top of my second. I'm just a very isolated Australian man who never really. Got... How's your How's your Nepali going, Bez? What, <laughs> well, I mean, reading in all of the stories this week in in the game, and we'll talk about it uh, in great detail a little bit later on. It's. Uh, it's juicy content, at least. It's borderline magazine-worthy stuff, so I might be able to read it if it wasn't in, in Sanskrit. But, yeah, look, it's not a great time to be a Nepali cricket fan at this point, and we will talk about that in a little bit more depth uh, in a moment. But let's talk uh, about some happier things in regards to the emerging world. And the Under-19s World Cup uh, for the Associates has wrapped up at least with the Super Sixes concluding and. Rwanda, who are uh, playing in that, as well as UAE in the Super Sixes, they've uh, bowed out of the tournament respectfully with uh, some great performances to their name during the tournament. Uh, Rwanda, of course, being a real shining light, defeating both Zimbabwe, who we talked about last week, and then the West Indies to follow that up uh, in the Super Sixes. UAE weren't able to get a victory in the Super Six stage, but looking afield at other parts of the tournament, Indonesia got their first win as well, also beating. Zimbabwe, we'll talk about them. And there were positives in, in USA's campaign. Scotland, we'll talk about as well. But we'll start with Rwanda, Nick. And look, the bowling is outstanding. There's maybe a couple of ways to improve on the batting side. But I think 
we need to acknowledge that this is one of the greatest moments in Rwanda sporting history, if not the best moment in sporting history, to gain to take two victories from two full members at an under nineteen uh, women's cricket world cup. I thought they were excellent in the in the field and with the ball. The Shimways were, were excellent. They had a host of, of spinners who who played some excellent cricket as well. They got it done with the bat and chased down a couple of nervy totals. Uh, but fundamentally, in terms of their bowling and fielding, I thought they were quite a professional side and actually were probably above quite a few of their of their rivals at this level, especially, as mentioned, Zimbabwe and the West Indies, especially in the field, who I thought were quite poor. But look, they were certainly the, the headline act and... Yeah, to go into the Super Sixes and play against some good opposition, it gives them uh, a great yardstick for, for where they need to be in senior international cricket, but also for perhaps, you know, the Rwanda uh, women and girls coming through the system into the 19s and beyond as well. Yes, uh, well, you mentioned the Ashimwes. Uh, there's as many as four uh, played a match in this tournament. Um, Henriette and Giselle were all familiar with. Uh, Zurafat also uh, the leggy, who I, I like the look of, um, not afraid to toss it up, gets gets a decent amount of turn for this level. And also Divin Ishimwe. I don't know if any of them are related or how many of them are related, but um, the, the Ishimwe's are set to dominate um, associate women's cricket for the next little while at least. I think you're spot on with the, the batting being the issue. Um, Giselle was good, uh, 133 runs for the tournament, um, averaged 30-plus but basically had very little support, um, you know, to Yazeri and Henriette came through, uh, you know, once or twice, but it was definitely more of a, a bowling heavy display. Um, they have a lot of talent on the bowling side and, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, how far they can go once they do graduate to that senior level. I know a number of these players have already played quite a lot of senior cricket for Rwanda. And I mean, this is something we talk about a lot, but it's it's just great to see how strong African cricket is and you know how uh, Tanzania could easily have qualified for this tournament instead of Rwanda and you know how exciting would it be to have seen them play and and there's just so much quality out there yeah definitely it raises some questions about the format um Zimbabwe were you know they were pretty dismal let's be honest um you made a good point um before we started recording that you know the fact that Zimbabwe are full members almost was a bit of a disadvantage in the sense that, you know, Rwanda and co at the next level down who had to qualify, there were nine teams playing and they're, they're playing a lot of cricket in the region against each other, you know, pushing each other to get better. Whereas, you know, Zimbabwe's under 19s squad, they didn't need to qualify. And I'm not really sure what actual match practice they had. I remember seeing there were some sort of training camps and uh, internal stuff within Zimbabwe but in terms of actual international cricket which is what these African associates have a lot of at the moment I don't think Zimbabwe had enough of that and and it showed you know they were they were sloppy in the field their batting really lacked discipline they weren't good enough and as we discussed last week I think there's a good case they wouldn't have even come second in the regional qualifiers yeah they were really quite poor so yeah and this is kind of a a situation we see a few examples of this in associate versus low rank full members in that if the full members are you know sitting on their laurels and not really doing anything the associates are often going to push them because the associates are playing competitive you know decent level cricket day in day out whereas if you're just automatically sailing through 
uh, you know, qualifying for stuff that you don't necessarily uh, deserve to be there, that's going to show on the field. Um, so yeah, Rwanda is part of that, the new breed of, of cricket, I would say, in, in, you know, along with Thailand and um, a few of these other countries where cricket, it, it doesn't have such a long history. And Rwanda, we know, became ICC members only about 20 years ago or so. Yeah. And you know, to have come this far in that amount of time, as you say, this is by far and away their, their best uh, result at any sports World Cup at any level. That's going to create some interest back home, you would think. And, you know, if they can capitalize on that and, and you know, get more women and girls picking up a bat and ball, the world's their oyster, really, because as, as we've seen, the quality is not so calcified. The West Indies are very beatable at this level. The US under-19s team beat them 4-1 in a series. Uh, Zimbabwe are, you know, struggling... Ireland, um, you know, not that crash hot. Uh, even Pakistan, they they were okay in this tournament, but you know they certainly have their issues, and they're 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 very beatable. Um, Bangladesh, who are at at the senior level in women's cricket, struggle a bit at the youth level. Here, they they beat Australia <laughs> right out of the gate on the, on the first day. So I, I think women's cricket is really exciting, and that's why the ICC has tried to prioritise it. I know we can sort of discuss their success or failure at, at that in, at, in another time, but you know, there, there's a reason why a lot of people in cricket are very interested in women's cricket, and it's because teams like Rwanda can actually make an impact and, and get further up the rankings than in men's cricket where everything's kind of stagnated. Well, one thing that this tournament showed us, and granted, between one result, between UAE and and Scotland, do we get the chance to, to kind of make this point? But Asia and Africa had the most robust qualification pathway for this tournament. And it's no coincidence that the likes of Rwanda and UAE were the teams that were able to progress and make their way forward a little bit further in the tournament. To look at the Americas and, and the USA, who by all accounts are stronger than the West Indies side at the same level. We see that in that bilateral series. You look at the West Indies and again, they're in this sort of a similar boat to uh, Zimbabwe where they just, because they just get full membership, they can kind of just ride on the coattails of that and qualify automatically without really having or really needing a, a system whereby you find your best 11 to 15 women's under 19 players. And it would be difficult in a place like the Caribbean where, you know, you have to traverse several islands and several countries to actually find who you want actually being picked in that team. But the proof is in the pudding really when it comes to the likes of Rwanda and UAE at this tournament. You know, without the the strong foothold of regional qualification cricket in Africa and the work that the ACC has done in that region in, in Asia and a bit of a shout out to, to Shanak Saka and his article on the ACC uh, this week. It, it looks kind of obvious now looking back at the tournament and seeing who would succeed and who wouldn't just by who's played the most cricket. And to kind of bring it to, say, Scotland, who only qualified with a, a three-match series against the Dutch, um, we know that they've had a lot of sort of internal camps, but there's just not a whole lot of opportunity for those under-19 women to, to kind of play, a, uh, say, in England even or, or in Ireland. So it kind of makes you wonder, you know, what's the future of this conveyor belt and this pathway going to be like if, if we're just going to have this this situation because, you know, there's two re- regions I can see profiting from this Under-19 Women's World Cup because there's more qualification strength collectively. I just look at, at the likes of, of Scotland and, and the USA and, and think, you know, they're just desperate for some people around them to, to give them a little bit more competition and, and to sort of build 
build each other up. Yeah, and I guess in terms of being on the field and, and getting that match experience, I don't think it's a coincidence that the best performers from these teams are the ones who've played a lot of uh, senior international cricket. You know, um, Catherine Fraser was, <laughs> by some distance, Scotland's best player, took nine wickets throughout the competition, <laughs> had a... Um, a, a pretty handy average of 11 and an economy rate of, of under 7. She bowled her whole quota every game and she was the only Scottish batter to pass 50 uh, in that victory against the USA. And she's played 31 senior internationals for Scotland, um, so she's definitely had a taste of, of the top level. And then, you know, you look across to Tirta Satish, who looked really good against Australia, hit 58 at a handy strike rate of 120, um, hit a number of you know very good-looking boundaries. The UAE looked like... They were capable of posting a, a competitive total while she was out there. Obviously, once once she got out, the rest of the match fell away and, and, and more or less went according to plan. Although, you know, the Australians probably wouldn't have wanted to t- lose four wickets. But, yeah, obviously, uh, Satish has played a lot of cricket for the senior UAE team. Players like uh, Samara Danadaka, Vaishnavi Mahesh, you know, a number of these uh, women have, have, have played already and are sort of forming up to be key members of the senior UAE women's team. And, you know, that's one of the reasons the senior UAE women's team is such an exciting outfit at the moment. They have a lot of uh, young talent coming through, and and they're just going to get better um, for at least for the next few years. So, yeah, obviously, you know, the fact that these players are the ones performing well against full members at a World Cup is just a testament to the fact that they've, you know, they've been there, they've done that, um, they've played senior cricket and they know what they're doing. There's really no substitute for match experience and, and that's what is, is kind of being borne out. I guess looking a bit more broadly, how, how do we get more of these players playing more cricket? This is something that, you know, the regional pathways in associate cricket, I mean, at men's level, they used to be a lot more extensive and they've got cut back. Uh, at the women's level, they sort of never existed in, in the first place. Um, you know, that's where these these pathways are really important because they allow teams like the UAE and Scotland and, and, and so on to just get a bunch of cricket under their belt and, and that makes all the difference. So going forward, obviously this is the first uh, event that of, of this type for the for the women's side of things, the under-19s women's. Maybe they'll look at a 50 over under-19s. Maybe they'll look at rearranging the structure. I don't know. But I, th- I think the, the success of Rwanda, uh, I think the success of the event, it's been a really exciting event. Even against India, Scotland, you know, they're on track with the run rate against against India for, I think, for most of the power play. Uh, so, you know, they, they showed glimpses. So I, I'd make the case that just getting more of these teams on the field is going to be good for international cricket generally, which, as we always say, what's the ICC's product? It's international cricket. They should be building a market for this, building a market for women's international cricket, building a market for youth international cricket. You know, that's that's their job. That's their role. And I think this has been a pretty successful tournament. You know, they, they can build on it at a product level, but by building on it at a product level, that should open up more pathways at the next level down, which ideally will mean that more of these women and girls get a chance to, more chances to get better. And I just, I'm so excited about this because the women's cricket is the frontier, you know, and it's only going to get better for associates. Obviously, we can talk about governance and obviously we can talk about potential issues with tournament structures and pathways, but there's so much potential here. The ICC really... It's almost like they've been given a blank slate um, compared to the the mess that we're in with men's cricket. Here, women's cricket is not stuck in the old ways and they've got a chance to uh, kind of do better and and learn from what went wrong with men's cricket. The team that we haven't had the chance to talk about yet after their win uh, the tournament, Indonesia, 
unbelievable story. Talked about them a little bit more in depth uh, last week after they narrowly fell to the West Indies. They were able to get their win over Zimbabwe um, and to focus on the positives. You know, the likes of Dewey and, and Kerniatini were excellent. They stood up. The bowling and the fundamentals, again, were good. But they were just so classy in their chase. I know it was only a little sort of tricky chase to get in the end, but some of the running in between wickets, capitalization on overthrows, knocks into gaps and running singles, again tells me that they're from a raw talent and, and, and from a technical and even an intellectual standpoint, I actually think that they played some really smart cricket and deserved their victory as well. Nearly Katuk, Wesika Dewey, inspirational leader. I thought she was excellent at the front leading that team was pretty honest and forthright in, in what she said about the team and, and granted in her English not being a first language, it's admirable that, you know, you've even got the courage to, to go up for an interview and, and, and talk in a, in a language that, you know, you, you don't necessarily have a, a great grasp of. I thought that was quite powerful. But for the likes of Indonesia, you know, the sky's kind of the limit. A lot of people have made some sort of parallels and comparisons to what Thailand have done. Probably an apples and oranges comparison in, in some respects, but there looks to be a good sort of base for Indonesia to work forward on uh, in future tournaments and in senior international cricket. And the population, that you know, the numbers are there, the participating players in schools and in clubs is there. You never really know what you're going to get here, but there are enough positives to, to tell me that, you know, they will make a mark in, in women's associate cricket in, in the next decade or so if they, if they keep playing like this. Yeah, Wasika grabbing the first Pfeiffer of the tournament was impressive. 5 for 18 against Zimbabwe. She was also uh, Indonesia's top run scorer, so pretty handy talent going forward. As we've kind of discussed, batting again the issue, they, they did get over the line against Zimbabwe, but, you know, <laughs> only just um, and only chasing a target of 87 uh but you know they did enough they got the win that's all you really want as you've kind of alluded to um all the factors with indonesia the 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 population the participation numbers you know they're another one of these really exciting uh growth potentials for the game and again it's it's the women's side uh leading the way and this this is just such a great opportunity for cricket to get so many more kids picking up bats and balls. And Tim likes to talk about building heroes. Um, that was something uh, that that was a big sort of priority for him. Um, and and that's something that uh, he you know he's still doing over in Vanuatu. And this is something that Indonesia can be doing and Rwanda can be doing. And I mean the women's IPL is uh, coming up and teams need to be uh, drafting associate players. That's right. Why not have a look at some of the some of the young talent coming through here? You could do sillier things, honestly. That's a, a move that I think went a little bit under the radar, actually, when talking mm. about, uh, I think it's called the Women's Premier League now, not the, the for, for all intents and purposes, it's a, it's a women's IPL, but it remains to be seen how that's applied. If you, Of course, you're going to sign someone per the regulations, but uh, what happens in terms of a, a playing 11 as well? But yeah, the Women's Premier League is, for associate members, that could potentially be a bit of a boon um, if, it, if it sort of works out. And we know that in associate circles, women's cricket, women's international cricket, and, and for a lack of a better term, women's franchise cricket, if you want to sort of count fair break, I know it's not a, a franchise tournament per se, but a tournament of that ilk. That's the pathway. You know, that's that's where we're going to find our, our sort of brave new world of, of emerging cricket and where it goes from there remains to be seen. But there are several positives in that. Just hope that the way it shakes out and, you know, associate cricketers actually get, you know, a decent crack. I mean, Natakin Chantham was in the 
um, women's T20 challenge. Yeah, yeah, I think she faced about four balls in the whole tournament. Yeah, and, and, and pulled off one stunning piece of fielding on the boundary, but she just wasn't given an opportunity. So you'd hope maybe that, you know, with it extended by, by more teams, um, there might be a, a bit of scope there. It remains to be seen, and yeah, with that auction coming up, um, that's a very exciting time for for women's cricket and it'll change people's lives that um, just the money that's being thrown around in terms of bidding for uh, a franchise actually in the competition for, you know, the, the consortiums that have come forward and, and wanted to be a part of it shows you that, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of money around and um, Viacom winning the, the media rights as well for, you know, an exorbitant amount of money. Um, it should go off and we'll love to see it. But again, you know, like the, the men's IPL when the men's IPL started, uh, there are a lot of sort of concerns financially and there were teams that, that didn't end up sort of pulling through. We hope that's not the case and the lessons have been learned um, for the women's side and, that, and that'd be sort of good viewing. You're right about the associate slot that's available for, for teams. It's, it's interesting that it hasn't really been reported that much. It sort of just got slipped out in a press release and everyone just sort of went, oh yeah, okay, and moved on. Whereas this is the sort of thing you know, we've been calling for in leagues all around the world, everywhere, all the time. And <laughs> the BCCI just kind of drops it in there like it's no biggie. And uh, <laughs> um, So, yeah, that's kind of interesting. The, the idea is that they get four overseas slots plus one extra overseas slot if it's uh, from an associate player. Um, so, you know, will, will teams take advantage of that? I, I don't know. Uh, we have certainly um, seen a lot of the time on the men's side at least that that franchise teams are often reluctant to uh, play associates even when they're available so I guess we'll see but you know it's it's a great initiative and <laughs> we certainly criticize the BCCI quite a lot but they got it absolutely right on this one so yeah full marks for trying to grow the game and I think just reiterating a point in the sense that because the BCCI uh, received so much of the ICC's disbursements it sort of is their responsibility to pick up some of the slack in terms of developing the game so it's it's good to see them doing that speaking of growing the game uh the olympics has once again come up into conversation there were a couple of conflicting stories in the week just gone the press trust of india declared the olympics bid dead in the water at one stage earlier last week uh only for quick info to come out uh, with their own story claiming that it was very much still on the table. Well, the LA 2028 Twitter handle replied to the story from PTI saying that it was basically nonsense. So, yeah, I don't know what happened with that one. Then Crick Info came out and said that, yes, it was still on the table, uh, but it would be a 16 tournament where those teams would be uh, chosen on the basis of ICC rankings. That copped a lot of condemnation from around the Twitter sphere. And, to be fair, understandably so. But there were a couple of strange things about the week of Olympic cricket reporting. I mean, the news of a six-team tournament with uh, qualifiers being based on ICC rankings was broken in December by a friend of the pod, Tim Wigmore, who um, was talking about it to me You know, in, in confidence as early as sort of late November. They ran the story in early December uh, and it didn't really get a whole lot of pushback then. So I was a little bit surprised when that was a topic or a point of, of consternation for a lot of people out there. But it does bring the point and there were a lot of naysayers on Twitter and you will see that, of course. But 
I think we're at Emerging Cricket and, and you can go back several podcasts where we have talked about Olympics inclusion, not only our discussions between yourself, Nick and, and Tim, but also when we spoke to people like Matt Featherston at Cricket Brazil, uh, Fabio Marabini in Italy, uh, a number of people uh, have come out and said... Brian Mantle in Germany. Yeah, Germany as well with Brian Mantle. Irrespective of if we qualify for the Olympics or not, the positives by far outweigh the negatives. And it's a little bit short-sighted to just go and lump into the negatives when the first format is going to be a rather rudimentary format. You would like to think that in future cycles, and if it, you know, if the proof of concept is there, there's no reason why the tournament can't expand to have more teams and to be, for all intents and purposes, a, a better format. We kind of need to walk before we need before we can run here, Nick. Um, and looking at, at some of the other positives outside of of just the sheer, you know, cricket being at the games. A lot of, of these boards, uh, cricket boards, associate members around the world are affiliated or in line with their National Olympic Committee. Should cricket be in the Olympics, you'd like to think that uh, there would be an uptick in, in funding. We know that that will differ from country to country. It's not a one-size-fits-all situation. But the exposure's there, and we know that there are big players in world sport who are enticed by olympic gold medals i mean china is is a bit of a final frontier when it comes to cricket development but we know that cricket is going to be in the asian games in Hangzhou in china and there's a cricket facility being set up uh exactly for that so it's been on the radar of of big olympic players for quite some time matt featherston i think summed it up best when we spoke to him and he said they're trying to introduce cricket into other parts of Brazil, and we know it's big in, in Pocas de Caldas and, and other other parts. But one of the first questions he gets asked every time he wants to grow cricket, the question always back is, well, is it an Olympic sport? Because everyone wants to be the lure of the Olympics is just so enticing for, for anyone to be involved in cricket. Again, I, I see the pushback and I understand parts of the pushback, but, you know, we need to start from scratch you know it's one of those things where we're going to have to build from the ground up here whether it be a 16 tournament with no qualifier per se it's better than nothing in this situation and you would like to think that in future cycles especially with 2032 in brisbane you would like to think that you know you could go above and beyond at the, at the next olympics and provide a better format after you've got proof of the concept working at the olympics well and then i mean looking forward even further 2036 there's a lot of speculation that india might go for hosting in the next cycle so you know if, if we can get a, a one two three of cricket and maybe have it kind of firmly bedded down for for a solid amount of time i think that could be quite exciting for the sport also i mean qualification on rankings that's pretty disappointing but other than i mean really that's my only criticism of the whole thing because realistically the ioc has made a lot of comments about how they want to reduce athlete numbers and i mean baseball was six teams at the last olympics in in tokyo i don't really see why how much of a difference six eight teams you know between those it's, it's not really going to make a big difference to the you know who, who's actually participating it'll probably be you know the usual suspects i think maybe you could get eight at a push um, but six, obviously the ICC is tailoring its bid to what, uh, you know, what the Olympics actually wants. Um, and, and I think that's good. You know, <laughs> we can get in the door first and then, you know, maybe go from there. I don't know. I, I, I just, yes, I, I agree as a fan, it's pretty disappointing to get a six team tournament, but that was never really the point. I don't think anyone who's really, 
advocated Olympics participation for cricket was really imagining that it would be a, a huge, you know, 16 team tournament with lots of associates getting in. I think the main benefit has always been the flow on effects of, you know, as you alluded to potential government funding. Um, there's a lot of money from governments around the world that is locked up for Olympic only sports. Um, and, you know, being in the Olympics unlocks that. And we don't know how much will necessarily flow through to cricket, but at the same time, it's better to, to be in there and, and have, have the possibility open than to be out of the Olympics and have a definitive no every time. And the other point is that this is this is how it sort of plays in with the qualifier. In a lot of other sports, the Olympic qualifier is a, a significant source of fixtures for the teams. So um, if the ICC can get its act together and organize an Olympic qualifier, I think that would just be good for you know, providing these teams with more matches on the field, as we as we kind of discussed with the under nineteen situation, just playing a lot of cricket is is going to help them get better. Also, if they can't manage to run an actual qualifier, I don't see why they can't use the uh, World Cup qualification pathways as sort of a, a double qualifier. They already do that in some instances with with things being sort of qualifiers for on the fifty over and T twenty pathways. So you know, make it a triple qualifier. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a pathway event for Olympics and World Cup and 50 over World Cup. I don't know. You know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that they could do that wouldn't necessarily cost any money or, or even time. Um, and, and that would still be better than rankings. Um, so, yeah, that is a bit disappointing. But, you know, the, the benefit has always been the flow on effects of funding and not just funding, but also, you know, high, higher visibility and, and sort of profile. Uh, I know, for example, uh, speaking to uh, Craig White uh, a little while ago, he was talking about uh, Mexico was sort of adding their voice to try and, um, you know, the efforts to get cricket into the Pan American Games. Um, and we've seen cricket pop up in a few different uh, multi-sport events, as you referred to, the Asian Games. Uh, I believe it's starting this year in the African Games, which which will be interesting and, again, is, is quite possibly a you know, a testament to the strength of the African region in cricket at the moment with with so much uh, competitive cricket coming out of there. You know, just being in the Olympics is going to add a lot more credibility to these bids to get cricket into other multi-sport games, which, again, same story, a lot of government funding, a lot of corporate sponsorship is, is often tied to, if not Olympics, then at least, say, the Asian Games or the Southeast Asian Games or the Pacific Games or the African Games. You know, if cricket can be sort of a fixture in all of these tournaments as well as being at the top level in the olympics you know that that combination of uh profile and uh <laughs> metal attractiveness to governments yeah i think that will make a big difference so yeah it's pretty short-sighted to just see oh six teams boring that's no good because it's never really it was never really about australia and india or whoever being in the olympics it was about everything else one of the arguments that i did see on twitter was well, why would any Olympic bidder want to have cricket in the Olympics? Or why would they be enticed by building a cricket facility in their country because they thought that it wouldn't be financially viable? I'd actually challenge anyone to go back and actually find any Olympic bid since about 1984 that's ever turned over a profit. LA 1984, I think, is the yardstick for Olympic Games ever really turning a profit. It's normally done... Um, at a loss everywhere. And we know that Tokyo in, in 2020 and 2021, I think they lost something like $3 billion. And because they didn't have 
fans or, or, or tourism in the country at the Olympics. They they really struggled. But you, you you go back all the way through the Olympics and and no one's ever really turned a financial profit on hosting them anyway. Even Sydney, I'm I'm pretty sure uh, was over budget and under delivered from a financial standpoint. Yes, maybe they might have profited from tourism down the line, and that's something that you might be able to kind of exploit. I, I don't know if if you were to host the Olympics and, and India were playing cricket in them, would you see an uptick of Indian tourism? I don't know. I'm not an expert of, of that. But you look at old Olympic sites, Athens, for example, the place is a ghost town um, and none of the facilities have been basically used since. It's the same with the FIFA World Cup and, and Brazil. They had stadiums that they converted into jails by the end of it. So you never really know what the, the kind of ulterior motive is to hosting Olympics. You know, if if you were really cynical about it, you would say that, you know, the likes of of China and be almost a, a Cold War argument brewing in terms of who actually wants to, to put them together. But yeah, again, you, you're not going into the Olympics and, and building the Olympics to, to make money. Well, there's that point. Um, and, and I fully agree with that. I think the idea that the Olympics would ever make money is... Um, pretty categorically nonsense even you know factoring in tourism and and whatnot i think it's it's um the evidence is pretty uh, tenuous I, you, the, the point of hosting the olympics is not that it's going to be profitable the point of hosting the olympics is to host the olympics you know so i think that's a good point well made um but also even if you are worried about the money t20 internationals can be played on hybrid pitches they can be played on astroturf pitches if necessary you know it doesn't take that much money to convert an empty field into a cricket field if you're gonna have a hybrid pitch or you know even an astroturf pitch so there's things you can do that don't necessarily involve breaking the bank to get cricket running so yeah i I don't really buy that argument uh in terms of it kind of dissuading people from hosting cricket and you know as we've seen with the asian games and and building a a big cricket stadium at huangzhou is that going to be profitable for the chinese government probably not but that's not really the point no yeah uh yeah plenty of olympic chat uh the next few weeks i think will be important in, in terms of how it all shakes out those olympics are still five years away mind you uh but we know that a lot of these things get sort of locked in pretty early uh paris 2024 of course no cricket um, but we've seen, you know, the advent of sport climbing and skateboarding that, you know, proved to be a hit. And they, they kind of just put their hand up and said, you know, we're not too proud to say we need the Olympics. You know, if, if the modern or so-called modern sports can, can subscribe to that and, and kind of lead the way, I, I don't understand why, why cricket can't do the same. Let's move on. Uh, Nepal T20, further fallout. And talking about everything that's gone on in Nepal cricket over the last two months, it's... It's the soap opera. It's basically the bold and the beautiful cricket edition of Nepal, really. The latest story out this week and um, the Kamandu Post, which is probably the most reputed newspaper and online presence in the country. Ten people, including six foreigners involved in uh, spot fixing. That's come from the police, the, the National Bureau there in Kathmandu. Uh, Two officials or representatives were named. Uh, former Nepali international Mehboob Alam reportedly lured two Nepali players for his fixing. And also, uh, a sad state of affairs, uh, a national team player in Muhammad Adil Alam, Adil Ansari to, to other people as well, he's also referred to as. They've been detained uh, in regards to all this. 
A foreign player has not been named, um, was also told to hit predetermined runs during matches as part of the spot-fixing plan. And I think the the big talking point or the, or the big part of all of this is that the mastermind behind it is allegedly the man leading 7-3 sports who, if you were to go back a few weeks when we talked about uh, this 7-3 sports were the strategic organisers of this tournament, Jason Alawalia, uh, the man who leads 7-3 sports, fled the country mid-tournament. So, <sighs> look, where do we start here? Uh, and I've spoken to people in Nepal cricket who are just so disillusioned by it now that it's almost not worth wasting their breath talking about it. But here we are, Nick, uh, talking about a country that to people from the outside stress that there's endless potential, but underneath that that image of potential, there's corruption, there's nepotism, there's financial mismanagement, um, there's a board that has struggled to position itself as a strong associate board post their ICC suspension to the point where the ICC have, have probably had to intervene um, several times since Cricket Association of Nepal's reinstatement. It's a terrible look, uh, all of this. And again, it's it's kind of just an indictment of everything we thought we knew already about Nepali cricket to the point where you look at this story and you say to yourself, look, I'm really not surprised anymore. Jeez, where to, where to begin? Um players or ex-players in the case of Alam being arrested, current players being involved, uh, you know, a, a real sort of champion of the game in, in Nepal, in Mabub Alam. That's extremely disappointing if these, um, I guess, allegations turn out to be true, that he was kind of using his profile in Nepal to seduce young players into, into corruption. You know, Alam is the guy who, let's not forget, he took 10 for 12 against Mozambique. Um, back in the World Cricket League days uh, in, in 2008. You know, he, he has a long career, pretty successful career with the ball and, and also with the bat at times for Nepal over the years. So, yeah, it's it's extremely disappointing on that front to see, you know, stories of, of this kind of thing happening. Also, you know, <laughs> the organiser uh, fleeing the country midway through the tournament we we just thought it was a uh, kind of garden variety um skipping out on the payments and and you know leaving can holding the bag financially but it was actually a lot worse because again according to the um the the Nepali police this this guy was orchestrating a fixing ring um yeah what a mess i, I just keep thinking how this was entirely preventable because you know, Nepal has had multiple franchise leagues that have been run pretty successfully over a number of years, and nothing like this has ever happened before. And yet, can the Cricket Association of Nepal, in its infinite wisdom, decided that, no, no, these, these private leagues run by other people that have been quite successful, we can't have that. We need to have a, a can-controlled league. And to make that happen, they jumped into bed with these just cowboy operators that they obviously didn't know anything about or, or you know, you, you would hope that if they had looked into it, they would have kind of realized who they were dealing with. But somehow they've entered into a business deal with the worst kind of dodgiest scammers and now they're left with this mess to, to clean up. I don't... It's just so disappointing because it didn't have to happen at all. And I just don't understand why Can even needed to run this league. Well, I mean, they've probably looked at the dollar signs from 
an alluring businessman from abroad and just assume that it would be good content. Um, but it goes back to, yeah, the question that you ask, where why is domestic cricket so broken in Nepal, in Nepal and why does it take, you know, rich investors from abroad to, to fund things like this when you would like to think that the ICC funding that Cricket Association of Nepal gets should actually go a long way in the Nepal economy as well. You know, why can't a strong 50-over competition that goes, you know, for six months of the year, why can't that be up and running? And as a result, when you ask the question, why are they struggling in League 2 cricket and 50-over cricket, it's precisely for that reason. They don't have a proper 50-over domestic competition. And then to bring it back to T20 cricket, when the ICC suspended Cricket Association of Nepal, the stopgap in all of it was to basically have these franchise T20 leagues and the Everest Premier League under Amir Akhtar was the most successful out of all of them. And from what we've heard from people who have covered the tournament, who have been there, definitely the, the most above board. Um, and I've seen Amir Akhtar actually come out and, and talk on, on talk shows in Nepali, on Nepali television. And he, it's like a half an hour conversation and it's all in Nepali. But from what I can gather in terms of, you know, his body language and, and his mindset, he's very forthright in terms of, you know, what was wrong with Nepali cricket and, and the league. And th- this goes back to 2016, but I was talking to, to people when discussing, you know, the future of Nepali cricket. And, and even then, you know, in some of the sort of pop-up T20 leagues that were played in, in several regions around the country, uh, there were vested interests even for international players of Nepal who had part ownership in, in franchises. And the conflicts of interest were always very prominent in Nepal. And that's something that you, you're seeing here. And, you know, if these accusations are anything to go by, it goes much deeper than just Nepal now. We're talking into, you know, potential, you know, Indian underworld uh, figures and, and, and people like that. Because you have to remember, too, that gambling in Nepal is is illegal. Um, and I'm pretty sure in most of the states of India, too, it's still illegal as well. And we know that there's been underground betting in India for a long time, you know, you'd be naive to think otherwise. But it shows that this is going outside of Nepal and and this is the image that Nepal is sending out to people and future tournaments like this. You know, how are you going to lure any overseas talent? Because that was a big thing for a lot of the organisers. Oh, we really want to have uh, such and such playing at this tournament. He's a good international player. Well, you know, there's never really been an emphasis on developing domestic talent either. So you're kind of losing on both ends there when you're over-infiltrating the international presence at the tournament. Now, granted, it's good to have those people there helping you out, but... Well, and the international presence, what do you... I mean, Sikandar Raza hightails it out of the country uh, very understandably. Yeah, exactly. In hindsight, yeah. I mean, he probably took one look at it, this this operation and <laughs> saw that it was a total shambles. Yeah, it makes, makes you wonder how anyone almost accepted anything in the first place. But no, you're spot on. <sighs> and, I, and I just don't know where to go next. And, and you can tell that there's a disillusionment um, for the fans too because the fans are over it. And that's, that's the bit that kind of hits home because that's what Nepal had up its sleeve as the trump card for itself was... Well, we're always going to get people to the TU ground and watch cricket. Well, it's starting to look like they're just as disillusioned too. And the other thing as well, and we haven't even brought up this topic, and, and this is a fallback of, of Can being inept at, at its job and its purpose, the number of Nepali players of any talent or of any quality who have left the country and started afresh elsewhere. Well, that's another There's point. There's so many. Uh, I saw a Nepali women's international player uh, just moved to Adelaide, for example, uh, I think Subhash Kakarol's in Canada. 
uh, like all these guys are all over the place because they see it for themselves. They see it every day that there's a problem. And, you know, it's threatening to be the lost generation of Nepali cricket. And when you lose that one generation and you lose those heroes that, you know, we're so keen to big up, who do the, the children of Nepal see? They see no one. They see corruption. They see, yeah, they just see this inadequacy that of not knowing where to go next. And whose fault is that? It ultimately comes down on the people making the decisions, and that's the Cricket Association of Nepal for its malpractice. Yeah, I, I mean, and, and what is what has uh, Cricket Association of Nepal been doing this time? Well, they... Uh, it's just come out that they somehow, for some reason, they wrote to the ICC asking if they're allowed to have Sandeep Lamachani in their team now that he's been released on bail. I'm not really sure why they thought that the ICC had any kind of jurisdiction over, uh, I guess, over his bail conditions. I don't think it's an I, I ICC problem. It's, I don't, it's I, bizarre. So I don't, it, I don't, I just, you look at Can and, and you look at their behavior and you just think, who... What are they doing? Who are these people? What, what are, you, these, these, the decisions that are coming out of this organization are so... I mean, dysfunctional is a, a, just a small, inadequate word to describe what, what is happening here. And we've talked about it so many times and it just gets worse and worse. I, you know, I, I keep thinking, well, surely it can't get any worse. And it does. I, yeah, I, I mean, having people arrested and, you know, you're broadcast partner involved in potential corruption i just what are we doing here they were suspended and we thought when they would come back things might be different but clearly they aren't and this is the same story as we keep hearing in the u.s so clearly there's there's a much bigger broader problem in cricket because you can't just keep having the same thing happen again and again and again at some point there needs to be a circuit breaker what 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 can we do? You know, the ICC, I mean, okay, sure, let's suspend them again. Maybe the ICC can centrally run the game for a bit and then, I don't know, we need to be putting in place measures to make sure that this doesn't just keep happening. SOS. If anyone has a solution to all of this, um, yeah, speak now or forever hold your peace, I think, at this stage. Uh, I know we kind of touched on ICC intervention on whether or not there's any responsibility for Nepal. It's interesting to kind of bring maybe that idea or that question into our next topic at, at some point, and that's uh, the ticket report, uh, the ABC sport podcast and story that was done by Tracy Holmes, a pretty strong piece of, of emotive and uh, collective journalism brought in the Afghan women's team and many of the members of, of the Afghan women's team who have since resettled uh, in Australia. If you haven't sort of listened or, or read to it at some point, uh, it's definitely something we we kind of encourage you to, to go and find and, and look at because it's a pretty important piece of, of writing and, and production and to talk about in, in terms of uh, emerging cricket and, and the situation going on with Afghanistan women's cricket. And it, it just helps with the understanding in, in all of it. Afghanistan's full membership that we know always had that caveat around uh, women's sport and women's sport participation. Um, it's a topic of conversation that we brought up a lot. I wanted to get your take on it, Nick, as well, because as powerful as it is, I think it does raise questions in terms of how responsible ICC in terms of this Afghanistan situation. We know that when the ICC awarded full membership and when they awarded it for Ireland as well at the same time, but for Afghanistan's example, we know that they were awarded full membership in spite of not fulfilling women's cricket 
requirements and standards. Uh, we've come now five years later, five or six years later, and the question has come up again in terms of how women's cricket goes on in the country or surrounding, you know, the national team. We know that Australia aren't touring uh, or taking on Afghanistan, I should say, in bilateral cricket being part of the ODI Super League. But really, when you look at it here, both of those teams are safe from um, not qualifying for a Cricket World Cup. They're both through anyway. So Cricket Australia found it a little bit easier at that point to pull the plug. Interested to get your take on this. Um, and, and again, we do encourage people to, to go find that story and that report from, from Tracy Holmes. But it certainly does raise questions of, of how this has all been handled. But also now, too, five or six years down the track, what are the ICC's responsibilities in, in terms of rectifying the situation? Yeah, well, as, as you say, that uh, podcast and I guess written report as well from the ticket, uh, just absolutely phenomenal reporting on, yeah, talking to a, a number of members of the Afghan women's team, which until this report came out, no one really knew existed. The, the ACB, the Afghanistan Cricket Board, never released any team list. Um, they never played any matches for sure. Um, so just for starters, to, to track these women down, you know, um, they had to find out the names, just something as basic as that. You know, who was actually in the team, who was contracted, um, find out where they went after the Taliban took over and, and they fled the country, um, find out, you know, how to contact them, um, find out, you know, confirm that they actually got paid. That was an interesting little tidbit that came out of the reporting, was that their contracts had been honoured by the ACB until... Well, and, until the Taliban took over Afghanistan and um, women's rights in the country basically ceased to exist. But, you know, no, nobody had been aware of who was in the team or whether they'd been paid or, or, or anything. So the fact that they were even able to confirm this team is a pretty impressive uh, journalistic effort. And they must have had amazing sources to, to get all that information. So yes, definitely have a listen to the to the podcast. It's 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 fantastic with a, a you know a great human story at the core of it. You know, these these women women are it's just an amazing story of these women who've just gone through hell. Um, the the one the one issue I would raise is just as you say the ICC's place in all of this. You know, there's a lot of people in that report saying you know the ICC should do this or the ICC should do that or you know why is the ICC not acting. The fact is the ICC can't act, and this is something we've sort of touched on a number of times, but I guess it's a relevant moment to do a, another reminder, is that the ICC basically is not a governing body in any real sense of the term, because the full member boards are the ones who control almost all decision-making processes within the organisation. So if the ICC development team, for example... Uh, want to do anything to develop the game, it needs to get ticked off by the full member boards. Um, if, for example, the, the governance committee, uh, such as it is, wants to uh, punish a, a, a member organisation for not complying with the ICC's membership criteria, it needs to be ticked off by the full members, and so on. Um, to the point that, you know, back in 17, when Afghanistan... Uh, was awarded full member status with an exemption, as you refer to, uh, from their requirements to develop women's cricket. At that time, the ICC, uh, I guess the institutional side, uh, tried to put through uh, some oversight provisions, basically, to allow them to monitor full members for compliance with ICC regulations. And naturally, the full members um, blocked it, and the ICC has no oversight capacity. So, for example... 
towards the end of the report, one of the one of the players mentions that you, you know for a number of years they were trying to play cricket, though, and and you know the ACB was not really doing a whole lot um, <laughs> to, to support them, to put it mildly. You know, even before the Taliban, the women's team pretty much didn't exist. You know, she, she's saying, well, you know, why why wasn't the ICC coming in and inspecting our progress and, and making sure that, you know, the ACB was fulfilling it, its responsibilities? Well, I'm sure the ICC would love to have the capacity to do that, but they just don't. And it's a widespread misconception that the ICC is actually able to do most of the things, uh, most of these things. So, yeah, it, it, I think... In a way, the the um, the misunderstanding that the ICC is a governing body has kind of protected the people with the real power in this story, which is the full member boards. And you know, let's be honest, it's it's the big three who who call the shots at the ICC. So I guess hearing people in uh, in Australia and you know even within Cricket Australia, uh, they talk to Nick Hockley, who you know I, I don't doubt his heart is in the right place, but. It seems kind of uh, unbelievable that Nick Hockley, CEO of, of Cricket Australia, saying, oh, you know, we needed to step in and, and this and that. It's like, well, if Cricket Australia really was interested in governance standards, maybe they could have pushed the ICC to have oversight power. Or, you know, maybe Cricket Australia, uh, who's, you know, part of the reason why ICC governance is so broken, could make a commitment to trying to improve ICC government. So... Yeah, it, it doesn't sit well with me to hear people uh, in Australia, especially, <laughs> criticising the ICC for inaction and praising Cricket Australia for action when the ICC is not capable of acting. And part of the reason it's not capable of acting is because Cricket Australia has contributed to stopping it having the power to act. So, yeah, that that was that was just one little quibble. Um, but it, it it gets to a um it gets to a broader point within cricket that a, a lot of people think the ICC can do a lot more than it actually can. Yeah, well, it, it's funny because I was speaking to someone who is still currently employed by the ICC and I sort of came to question, you know, in terms of, you know, the the ICC. He made the point that it comes down to the nature of the organisation. Is the ICC an international federation or a members body? And quite frankly, they're the latter. Uh, and if they're doing things for the interests of their members and not just as a governing body, you know, governing over the sport, then you get these instances where, you know, the Afghanistans can stand up and sort of beat their chest and say, look, well, you gave us full membership under this pretense, you know, what's changed over the last five to six years? Well, exactly. They didn't have a women's team when they became full members. Yeah, exactly. They so, disbanded their women's team in 2014, three years before they got full membership. Everyone knew there was no women's cricket in Afghanistan and they still got the exemption. So, I mean, for a start, Cricket Australia could come out and just admit that they got it wrong with granting the exemption and, and promise to try and fix that within the ICC constitution. That'd be a start. Yeah, and that and that's that goes back to the naivety, doesn't it? Because it, it comes back to well, yeah, all the, the the boards knew when they went to vote on this that that was the case. You know, it would have been put forward. You know, I'd, unless there was some very very bad oversights in all of this, they the members would have known this situation beforehand. So, you know, the responsibility does lie on the shoulders of the games full members pre two thousand and seventeen as well. You know. And again, the ICC is probably the ones that, you know, rubber stamping it. But 
the fact of the matter is, if it's a, if it's a body to serve its members and not a governing body that oversees everything in international cricket, then again, this is when you come into a situation like this. And to be honest, you know, the ICC and all this are, are quite powerless now because people have played the cards. It's not like they can just wave a magic wand and say, "Oh, we're, we're doing this." Um, it would take you know March the the sort of bi yearly meetings that they have with the with the members to to push things through. So, you know, you, you can't just make a snap decision like this. And it's the same. As everything else, you know, when when budding associate members look to put forth their membership, they have all their paperwork ready and they don't get told until, you know, the start of the financial year in, in start of July um, because, you know, the meetings are, are put forth then. It's not like you just kind of sign up whenever you want and the ICC just goes, oh, here you go, have an ICC membership. Um, it's a slow process. But again, if you go back and you, and you ask yourself, you know, did everyone in 2017 do their due diligence when they went through this slow process, do we find ourselves in this situation in the first place? We'd probably argue not. Anyway, I think the conclusion we can come to in all of this, Nick, is there's never a dull moment in uh, emerging cricket. Plenty of stuff to talk about. Thank you for spending your evening uh, with me, Nick, recording and talking all about the emerging game. Uh, for everyone out there, thank you for listening and we'll be back as always next week. Uh, but for now, enjoy whatever you're doing and enjoy the rest of your week in the emerging cricket world.